This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. I'm joined today by Dr. Kathy Whitlock, Regents Professor of Paleoecology at Montana State University, and Dr. Stephen Hostetler, a hydrologist at the Northern Rocky Mountain Science Center of the U.S. Geological Survey. I've been working in the greater Yellowstone for over 40 years, and it's, it's really a, a really important place for me, both as a person and in my research. And it's undergoing change, and, and that really concerns me. Okay. It's, it's the last large temperate ecosystem in the world. These two are the lead authors of the recently published Greater Yellowstone Area Climate Assessment. The front matter of the assessment perhaps says it best. The assessment draws on the best available science to provide a basis for understanding the consequences of climate change in the greater Yellowstone area. Compared to both distant and recent past, temperatures are increasing, snowfall is decreasing, and peak stream flow is occurring earlier. These climate trends are projected to continue and accelerate in the future. Kathy, Steve, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So, Kathy, let's start with you. Where did you grow up and what did your parents do? The first part of my childhood, I grew up in upstate New York, but then my family moved to uh, Denver, Colorado. And so that's where I went to high school. And then I went to college in Colorado. My dad was a scientist. And I'm sure that's why I, I got my love of science. He was a medical researcher. And my mom was a, a kind of a super volunteer. She volunteered for tens of thousands of hours helping the community. And I think partly that's why I like uh, doing things like assessments. Makes a lot of sense. Steve, how about you? Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Um, I grew up in Ohio, in a small town in central Ohio. Uh, my dad was a CPA. Uh, my mom was variably a volunteer uh, homemaker and worked in a bank and um, went to school in Ohio, went to Ohio State uh, University uh, for my undergraduate degree. And the rest is history. So let's get into this Greater Yellowstone Area Climate Assessment. Kathy, let's start with you. Describe the project. What is it that you all set out to do? Well, this has been a two year plus or minus project, and it's been a collaboration between researchers at the USGS, Steve and his colleagues, Montana State University and University of Wyoming, as well as a collaboration of um, NGOs, including the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. So the motivation was partly to bring these diverse groups together and look at climate change for an ecosystem I've been involved in in doing state level climate assessments for Montana and and this one just made a lot of sense to me because the ecosystem really defines the uh, geographic area where climate change is occurring and affecting communities and different landowners. What is the Greater Yellowstone Area? How is that defined in your assessment? Well, it's it's usually called the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. So it has Yellowstone National Park at its core along with Grand Teton National Park. 
but it's 22 million acres and it extends from the high elevations of Yellowstone and Grand Teton down to lower elevations, which include the towns of Bozeman and Cody and Jackson, uh, Driggs. And so, so Kathy, you mentioned before that, you know, you've been involved in, in, in assessments at the state level. What is a climate assessment? Like what questions does it answer? And you know, who's the audience? What is the purpose of a, of a project in a document like this? And why is it important? An assessment is a report. It's a, it's a synthesis of the best scientific information at the time the report is written. And in our case, the report is, is online because we want to reach as broad an audience as possible. So we're looking at, at the scientific literature. Uh, we're using the, the state-of-the-art modeling capacities. And the audience is land managers, uh, people in agencies, but also the public and the communities that are in this ecosystem. So we wanted to provide a, a, a common platform of information about what's actually happening with climate change and how that's affecting water resources so that everybody has the same information and we can talk about the issue looking at the same data. I mean, the conclusions kind of spelled out in the front matter of the re- report, and we mentioned those in the introduction, are, are, are pretty stark. Temperatures are increasing, snowfall is decreasing, and peak stream flow is occurring earlier. What does that mean, Kathy, for this area? Well, I, I always think of it that, that the warming temperatures are sort of driving everything. We're seeing 2.3 degree Fahrenheit increase in temperatures since 1950. And what that's doing is it's reducing the duration of snowpack, you know, so snow doesn't last as long. It melts earlier, it comes off faster, and we go into summer being drier. So you're getting these water shortages in summer and very dry conditions leading to wildfires and that sort of thing, simply because it's just warmer and it's been getting steadily warmer. I think an interesting aspect of the warming is March appears to be the the month that's warm the most. And so March now is more similar to April than it had been to February. Um, so what's happened, that, that, that's a real emerging divider in terms of earlier snowmelt, earlier spring conditions relative to the past. And so what does that mean for things like fire season or growing season? I mean, because there's I don't want to use the term winners and losers, but for various constituents in the ecosystem, how do these effects kind of come to life for them? Because it's gotten warmer, the growing season is longer. It's about two two weeks longer. So that's that's a good thing. The problem is, is that it's associated with more evaporation, drier soils, less available water at the end of the summer for irrigation. So just having warmer temperatures, as any farmer can tell you, you know, isn't isn't the whole deal. The other thing is, we've seen fires not in Yellowstone region, but also across the West. We used to think the '88 fires were really a big deal in the Yellowstone region, and they sort of kicked off these these year after year of large fires. But 
But boy, now the 1988 fires look small in comparison to what we've seen in other parts of the West. And, and that's a function of warming as well. And I think another aspect of that is we're seeing with peak stream flows earlier in the year and lower flows thereafter, we're seeing this kind of combination of warmer temperatures with lower flows, which, as everyone in Montana knows, really does affect aquatic systems such as rivers. And so, you know, just in the observed record, we're seeing these shifts that are going on in terms of warmer water warmer water temperatures uh, for longer periods in the summer. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of how we know this. Kathy, let's start with you. I mean, I know you study core samples and, you know, in, in lake sediment in order to make, um, you know, judgments about what, what things looked like in the past and grabbing the best available science. What are, briefly describe some of the methodologies that are used in sort of understanding the moment we're in right now. Well, we always sort of try to put where we're at now in some sort of context, um, some sort of temporal okay. context. And so we have the opportunity, and in the report, we, we actually go back to the conditions that have happened over the last 20,000 years, which is the, the conditions since the last ice age. And we get that information by lake sediment cores, where we can look at the pollen to tell us about the vegetation and the charcoal to tell us about the fire. Uh, and, and then we have paleoclimate models that Steve's been involved in that tell us about past temperatures. And, and so what we see when we look over that really long time period is that we have had warm periods in the past. It was warm, for example, around 6,000 years ago, and it was very warm and dry around 1,000 years ago. But we're really, what we're seeing now looks to be unprecedented in terms of how warm it is, how dry it is, uh, how it's affecting things like stream flow. And so that comes from this long-term perspective, but also then the shorter-term perspective is looking at weather station data and um, modeling based on weather station data that goes back to 1950 and stream gauge information that also goes back to the early 20th century. Okay. So you've got sort of a, a fixed historical record going back, you know, 50, 70 years or a hundred years. And then, you know, this, this, the sediment core that can give you assessments going back further. But Kathy, you mentioned there, like what you're seeing is unprecedented. And I know Steve, you do some of the modeling, like if we're seeing things that are unprecedented right now, how does that affect how you make projections about what we're going to see in the future? I think in, in some instances, the projections for the future pretty much follow what we've seen historically. So what we're seeing today, for instance, or, or over the last, since 1950, there's been a decrease in, in, in snowfall and snowpack. And so, you know, continuing on uh, on that trajectory, we're just, we, we see more of that. We see it getting warmer. You know, at some point, I think around 2040, the average temperature in the GYA will be will will exceed the really unusually warm 1930s drought period. So at that point, if we stay on that trajectory, the average temperature is above that, and if we and, and will not come down below that again if we stay on on these trajectories that we're on. 
And can you talk briefly about the the concept of of confidence or certainty in in, in this modeling and some of the you know, in some of the report you have projections that are listed as high confidence, medium confidence, or you know descriptors like that. How do you make you know? Can you talk about the the just the concept of certainty in, in your projections? Yeah, and that's a big that's a big question or it's a big issue because we're using models to look at the future and models aren't perfect but as a group they can give us some pretty good information so in terms of what we looked at we place confidence on for instance if there's 20 of the models if if 18 or 20 out of 20 or 20 out of the 20 models project a temperature increase then we're pretty confident that that temperature increase is consistent among the models and the projection has some validity in terms of that group of models. We'll be back to our conversation with climate scientists Kathy Whitlock and Steve Hostetler after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Build it, bike it, ski it, hike it. Come be a part of the process for creating a new and better Marshall Mountain as the city embarks on a journey to bring the beloved Missoula Mountain into public ownership. Parks and Recreation will host a community celebration at Marshall Mountain on September 12th from 1 to 4 p.m. Residents will have a chance to tour the site and learn how to become involved with the planning for the future Marshall Mountain Recreation Area. Check it out. This is Anne Helen Peterson, and I am a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with climate scientists Kathy Whitlock and Steve Hostetler about what they learned compiling the Greater Yellowstone Area Climate Assessment. So let's shift gears here to the implications of this information. I mean, we've got, and and the report breaks out the implications for various sectors, whether it's tourism or agriculture or, you know, heating demands or whatever, wildfire, et cetera. Um, So Kathy, when you're thinking about the implications, like how did you go about organizing the report and um, thinking about a way to translate um, what you found in terms of the science into useful information for policymakers and, 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 other other constituents? Well, I feel like we just sort of touched the surface of it. And what we did is we we realized that there were particular climate variables that were coming out of Steve's modeling effort that had direct implications for agriculture or industries that depend on, on snowfall or wildfire preparedness. And so we just presented those those climate variables with a little bit of comment. I think Steve and I both hope that, you know, we can go into that in more depth, but that's sort of where we started. Well, let's talk about some of the, the, the you know, some of the key takeaways here as far as wildfire. You know, fire seasons are getting longer, Earth climate's warmer. I know, Kathy, you've made the point that, yeah, more higher temperatures means more fires. So it seems like we've got a bit of a dangerous combination um, with wildfire in particular, I mean, is this report informing any any policy or, or or planning from land managers to your knowledge, or is it too early to tell? 
We don't really know yet if our report's going to have policy impacts. We hope that policymakers will look at it and seriously consider the results because it's very clear that all of the indications are that we're going to see more wildfires simply because it's warmer, fuels are drier, soils are drier. And from other studies, we know that ignitions are higher, particularly human ignitions. So wildfires, I think, are in our future and we're going to have to learn to live with that. And another interesting note in in the report is the implications for heating, for example. It said, you know, with a, with a warmer climate, we're going to have reduced demand for heating. But, you know, given the, the temperatures we've had the last few weeks, I mean, there's folks are asking me right and left, like whether I, or not I have air conditioning. You would expect perhaps, potentially an increased demand for cooling and that could potentially change the cycles of energy demand here in Montana in particular. Is that a consideration of you know how, how kind of consumer demand for different uh, kind of environmentally affected outputs can be affected by, this, by, by the changes in the climate? In the report, we looked at heating degree days and cooling degree days, which are you know, the metric of energy use and demand. And, you know, from what we did in this particular assessment, it looks like the energy savings or less demand for heating will potentially offset any increased demand for cooling in the summer. Several of the locations, for instance, Jackson, were fairly far out, you know, 2030, 2040, kind of in the projection where those days over 90 or those, those, those cooling degree days uh, really start to kick in. Not so much the case in a place like Bozeman that already, you know, already has a number of those days and the cooling demand is there. And let's talk about some of the variab- variability within the assessment area. The climate changes across the assessment area are not uniformly distributed. Talk about, you know, places that are warming at a particularly rapid rate or at a less rapid rate or, you know, how precipitation is varying across the area. And maybe, maybe Kathy, start with you in, in, in the sense of what we know from recent history about, you know, how these effects are distributed across the, across the ecosystem. Well, when you think about temperature, for example, it's gotten 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit warmer for the whole greater Yellowstone area. But the the watershed that's gotten the warmest is the upper green watershed in the southern part of the ecosystem. And there it's gotten three degrees warmer. On the other hand, the the watershed that's warmed the least, I guess, is the snake headwaters, where it's only gotten a little over one degree Fahrenheit warmer. So there is there is geographic variability. The same with snowfall. Overall, the the regions had about 23 inches less of s- snowfall since 1950, but that's that's not evenly distributed. Either the Upper Snake has had the most decline in snowfall, and the uh, the Upper Yellowstone really hasn't seen much change in snowfall. Yeah, and it's interesting also that. Uh... It, it changes by elevation as well. So the, the losses at various elevations differ. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, what, what in these findings were most surprising to the two of you? I was interested in the geographic variability 
that you see from one watershed to the next. That I guess anyone that travels through the greater Yellowstone ecosystem can see that, but it was interesting to see how the, the climate change changes were different from one watershed to the next. We also did something that we interviewed uh, people within the ecosystem and asked them about what concerned them the most with respect to climate change, uh, what sorts of things were they seeing? And there was a really uh, consistent answer that people are worried about water as their primary concern. And that was interesting too. Steve, how about you? What surprised you in this project? Honestly, I don't know that I was surprised. We've, we've looked at a lot of climate change across the West and it's fairly consistent in terms of what we see elsewhere. I think one thing, one thing I did notice was that, uh, you know, kind of given the high elevation of the GYA and in the, the ecosystem, it, it it it's somewhat buffered to these changes relative to other places such as the Upper Colorado or Lower Colorado River Basin. So there is that there there is some buffering that 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 is going on and 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 may continue to go on. That doesn't mean that the situation isn't isn't looking, you know, potentially looking bad, but still there is some amount of buffering. And I guess following up on what Kathy said, in the interviews, it, it's fairly it's pretty interesting because um embedded in some of the comments are this recognition of of climate change. I think one person talked about how they used to be able to rely on the reservoir being full all the time uh, until the, the you know the 1990s, and then after that it's been variable and they can't count on it anymore. And you know that's kind of a manifestation of, observ of observing climate change. And one other, one other interviewer interview I think it was a, a rancher said that they you know their family has always dealt with climate climate uh, you know climate throughout. The history of their ranch, but you know it's kind of climate variability, and as we start to warm up, climate variability is still going to exist. But uh, if the averages start to go up or change, then what what used to work may need some modification in the future. Indeed. So thinking about, I mean, that point about the 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 reservoir really resonates. So the two of you, I mean, you've been climate scientist for, for many years, and you've been immersed in this space. And, you know, Steve, your point about maybe not being surprised by any of the findings is well put. But also as citizens of the West, your lived experience has to resonate in some way. And maybe as a scientist, it's somewhat difficult to, to think about that, that dichotomy. But like, how does how does your experience of living in this ecosystem kind of resonate with what you're seeing in the science? Like, how does it affect you at an emotional level or your, just your, your, your relationship to the place? I've been working in the greater Yellowstone for over 40 years, and it's, it's really a, a really important place for me, um, both as a person and in my research. And it's undergoing change and and that really concerns me it's it's the last large temperate ecosystem in the world and it's changing before our eyes so that worries me and it's it worries me in a way 
that is even greater than my worry for the, the planet because it's a place that I know and love. Steve, how about you? I haven't worked as much as Kathy has in the Yellowstone, but I've, I've done some research there. And it, it's a special place. And I, I, like other places in the West that are kind of iconic, uh, I worry about that. I worry in the bigger picture about my kids and grandkids uh, in terms of what, what may be on the horizon for them. But I think in, a, in, a, in, in another way, this, this assessment has really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that in some ways the GYA is an ideal place to do this because the people that live there, work there, are, are truly dedicated to trying to find out, to, to come up with solutions uh, to, and to look at the future. And I think as a group, at least my impression is the interest level is very high. And um, if, if on a personal level, I can make a difference in terms of it, you know, improving things or contributing to some process that does that, then that's great. And thinking of those constituents, we should ask um, how the project was, was funded. What are your funding sources for a project like this? Well, we got funding from the Greater Yellowstone Coordinating Committee. Uh, we have funding from the USGS, uh, funding from the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And then a lot of it has just been a labor of love. The lead writers have just done it as, as, as uh, part of their, I guess, part of their interest and work. Yeah. Wonderful. Last question is, were there any big questions that you weren't able to answer in this assessment? I think Greater Yellowstone is changing not only because of climate change, but because of the great number of people that are moving here and the large number of visitors that are coming to places like Yellowstone National Park. And there's this, um, you know, there's these two stressors happening right now. And I really think we need to look at both of them to understand the future of the region. Yes. And I would say for what we intended, the assessment to be, there weren't many unanswered questions. We think that in the future, the assessment can be refined and some of the detailed questions that we didn't address, such as specifics about what might be happening in the Yellowstone River basin uh, in terms of, of stream flow and the, and the details of all that could be worked out later. But in terms of the overall context for providing, you know, kind of a first look at the past and present and future climate. I, I, I think, I, I think I didn't end up with any questions that weren't answered. But if I if I can add to that a little bit, I think that this is really foundational for looking at future aspects of the ecosystem. So it would be worth looking at how climate change and and land use change is affecting fish and wildlife, uh, what it means for the economies, tourism and recreation, agriculture, uh, energy in the region. Um, and hopefully we can use the information in this report then to look at different sectors of the region and get a better understanding of what the future looks like for those topics. I think that's well put. I mean, making science accessible and useful to a broad array of constituents is, I think, one of the, the great achievements of this work. 
If folks want to learn more about your work, learn more about the assessment, read the assessment, where would you direct them online? You mentioned it's a website. Kathy, where would you point them? They should go to gyclimate, that's one word, gyclimate.org. Kathy Whitlock, Steve Hostetler, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having us. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.